This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book. Is number two of a short series dealing with various aspects of the second coming. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, we are reading together the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Galatians. The first thing I feel that I would like to do this evening is to suggest to you that it's wise to remember that in some callings, something which is merited or is given as a reward may in another calling be just a gift without any merit attached to it at all. Now you say, how illuminating that is. What do you mean? Well, I think we'll illustrate it and you'll understand immediately. If I turn to the Gospel according to Matthew and look at chapter 19, I discover that somebody asked the Lord what he should do to merit or inherit everlasting life. And the Lord told him that he should keep the commandments. And he said which? And he went through quite a number of the Ten Commandments. It's not possible to, uh, to avoid the issue that that young man was told by Christ himself that if he would gain everlasting life, he must keep the commandments. And then at the end of that same chapter, he also said that those who leave father and mother and family and home and business for his sake, they will get everlasting life. And one further passage in Matthew 25, those who visited the Lord's brethren while they were in prison or they were sick and didn't even know they were doing it unto him, they have everlasting life. Now I'm positive that no one listening to me who has the slightest understanding of the gospel of the grace of God could ever preach everlasting life from those passages in Matthew as true today. You see, in each case, everlasting life is given as a recognition of some service done. But if I come to John's gospel, it's a gift of God. Or if I come to the epistle to the Romans, it's the gift of God. So you see, in one dispensation, Something may be a reward. In another dispensation, the very self-same thing may be a, sh a sheer gift and a part of your calling. Well, now we've read just together Galatians chapter 4. And we read in verse 26, But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is mother of us all. That's a part of their calling. He says, you are not children of bondage. You have been set free. And because you are set free, you belong to not Jerusalem which is here below, you belong to Jerusalem which is above. So the heavenly Jerusalem, which fills the book of the Revelation so much with its glory, was the very sphere of blessing that these Galatians had in prospect. It doesn't say that they got to overcome, they got to withstand the anti-Christian oppression. No, it was theirs. But when you come to the Revelation, those who have a right to the tree of life, and those who enter into the city are those who are overcomers. So you see, this question that we're going to consider this evening with regard to the second aspect of the second coming of Christ, we shall find in some callings it is the hope of their calling, and in some it will be the added prize in connection with it. But uh, let's look again. Abraham was given a specific covenant promise by God that he should possess a land. Well, when I read the epistle to the Galatians, uh, chapter 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is not a bond nor free. There is not a male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to what promise? Were these who were baptized into Christ heirs of the promise that they should one day inherit the land of Palestine and be a kingdom of priests in the earth with Jerusalem as their city down here? You say, no, certainly not. So they were heirs of some other promise that was given to Abraham. Well then, of course, you know, when we come to the epistle to the Hebrews, we discover that Abraham, who had one promise, looked for another, and the other one led him up to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, exhibited before us, we shan't have time, and I didn't intend to spend time in going through the details, I have put up a chart that some of you may have seen before. You will notice the parallel columns of passages, and as you look at them, they speak for themselves. That both the epistle to the Hebrews and the epistle to the Philippians have so much in common that while they belong to two different callings, they are both dealing with a prize or a crown or a race or something which has to do with a reward. They're suffering in view of added glory. And so we can look at the various speeches down there. And you notice the, the two epistles, they both use the words either perdition or perfection, although it's not translated perdition in Philippians 3. So this evening, we move up from Matthew 24, which directed our attention to what was coming on the earth, the second coming of Christ when the fig tree is budding, the second coming of Christ when his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, the second coming of Christ when they shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, all has to do with the earth. And the very prayer in uh, Matthew, uh, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, as it is in heaven. Well now you see, we move to the next step, that while the earth is to be blessed, and while Jerusalem down here is, is to be cleansed and redeemed and become what God intended it should be, there is a heavenly aspect. And some of those who belong to the first calling, they aspire to the second, and some of them will attain it. Well, that gives another phase or aspect of the second coming of Christ. And so, that is largely our consideration this evening. But one other thought, while we are dealing with the relationship of one epistle to another, in one codex, I forget which it is for the moment, um, each of the epistles have a letter over them. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. And it so, it so turns out that the two epistles which come together by the alphabetical index over them, not that they're joined together in the, in the actual New Testament, they're wide apart. The two epistles that come together are the epistle to the Galatians followed by the epistle to the Hebrews. Now you know Paul doesn't put his name in Hebrews. He doesn't address those to whom he wrote as an apostle. He says, suffer a, a word, a brief word of exhortation. Like he says at the end of Galatians, I've written unto you with large letters. But the, the suggestion is that the epistle to the Galatians was the covering letter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Writing to the Galatian church, which he could do as an apostle, to the Hebrews, who were rather under the ministry of Peter, James, and others, 
he could give them a word of exhortation because they were laid so much upon his heart. Well, all those things are extras and you may perhaps like to work them out for yourselves as time goes on. So, shall we now look at this question of the second, uh, this new aspect of the second coming of Christ? And we'll turn straight away to the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, of course, we might say that the Hebrews, just a name for the people of Israel, they were limited to the earth, but that isn't so. If you look at chapter 3, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So immediately, we've got chapter and verse. That the ones to whom he is writing this epistle were not looking merely for a restored earth, not merely looking for the city Jerusalem to be the center that should be radiating truth to the nations of the earth, but he says these had a relationship to heaven, a heavenly calling. And you were told how they were warned of the possibility of missing something. In chapter 3, he occupies our attention with the wilderness experiences of the people of Israel. And he sums it up in chapter 4 and says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering in to his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. He's warning them. Well now you may remember in the first of Corinthians, he devotes a great section of one chapter to the fact that while all Israel came out of Egypt under the aegis of the Passover land, not all Israel that came out of Egypt went into the land of promise. For they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, they tempted God over and over again, and all that generation died except Joshua and Caleb. So that we're not dealing with salvation pure and simple. We're dealing with that which goes with salvation, the possibility of loss and gain. And it is prefaced in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 by saying that all run in a race, but they don't all get the prize, that they don't all get the crown, and goes on to speak about Israel in the wilderness. So this passage in Hebrews 3 is not so much speaking about the way of salvation, but those things which accompany salvation, as he goes on to say presently. And then, Coming short of this promise would be coming short of that which is elaborated further when we get along in this epistle. Now in the um, in the epistle to the Galatians, he draws a distinction between a child who is under the elements and under tutors and governors and the child, the same child who grows up to manhood and has no more tutors and governors but now stands as a freeborn son. And so he approaches <coughs> his subject in the Hebrews. He says in verse 11 of chapter 5, uh, uh, verse 12, for, the, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as a need of milk and not a strong need. For every one that useth milk is unskillful, and the word unskillful is really made up of the word tempted. They haven't even been through a test yet. They were just simples. Unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat 
belongeth to them that are of full age or grown up, or having reached perfection. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, having, leaving the principles, the elementary principles that he speaks about in verse 12 of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. And that means the goal in front of you is something that you aspire after and you associate it with having grown up instead of being just baby. Well, then we come to the passage which illustrates this with regard to Abraham. Chapter 11. Now, if you have the structure of Hebrews in your mind, or before you, you would find that chapter 11 balances chapter 3. Chapter 3 are examples of unbelief given to warn you, and chapter 11 are examples of belief given to encourage you. It's good to see that God takes both sides. He doesn't merely warn you and leave you with a warning. He gives you encouragement as well. There were some who did persevere, although there were some who fell back and failed. So here we have in chapter 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he starts with a series of seven. Abel, down to Sarah, then there's a break. And then he starts with Abraham once again in verse 17, and there's another seven, and then there's a break. And then he says in um, the verse 32, what shall I say more, for the time would fail me to tell of, and he says another seven. Now that's not accidental. This emphasis upon the seven sets of uh, those who illustrate this aspect of faith, we find all focused in chapter 12, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking away from, not merely looking, looking away from what? Well, looking away from Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Noah and all the lot now, after having learned a little bit, looking away from them and finding all that they could ever teach us, every aspect of this uh, attitude in Christ. Looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured a cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So a race is in view still. A race. And he endured, and he overcame, and he sat down. So coming back to Hebrews 11, we pick up the story of Abraham particularly. Now it says in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. And then the story changes from what you get in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's no hint that Abraham uh, willingly and voluntarily lived as a tent dweller in the land of promise, as a pilgrim, but the Old Testament says he did. The time had now come to reveal that something else had been said to Abraham, for faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so now we are told that Abraham chose voluntarily to live as a pilgrim in the very land of promise, instead of inheriting it as we first of all expected he would do. For by faith he sojourned. A sojourner is not a resident. He's one who's just passing through. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. Although he'd got there, although he'd done what God told him, 
I believe God whispered to him there was something more, Abraham, if you like, as he says to you and to me. We can come to our epistle to the Ephesians and we can stop there. Blessed be God is enough to hold us. But the marvel of it is, he whispers to us in Philippians, there is such a thing as a prize of that high calling as well. Fancy that. When you think of all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, seated together with Christ, you think, oh, don't tell me anymore, it's overwhelming. And so it is. And yet the next epistle says, there's a prize of the high calling. And the Apostle Paul, who received the gospel of the grace of God and believed it, said, not only so, but there's a crown waiting for me, because I finished my course, I kept the faith. So you see, there is such a thing as an added reward and a prize over and above the salvation, which is a gift. Now the calling we're considering is the added prize. And as they're going to enjoy that in the heavenly Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ for them will not be when his feet stand upon the earth, but when he comes, and before he reaches the earth, and that is the aspect we're looking at for the moment. But we'll go back again to Hebrews 11 and, and watch the steps of Abraham a bit further. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles. And you do know that the word tabernacle here simply means a tent. The word tabernacle conjures up in the minds of so many of us a most wonderful piece of embroidery and gold furniture, but that wasn't the case. This was the tent of a, a wandering sheik. And don't forget he'd come out of a city, and even the ruins of the city which have been explored by the archaeologists, evidence that Abraham was a citizen of no mean city. But he voluntarily became a tent dweller. And together with him, Isaac and Jacob, who had the same promise in view, now it tells you why. Never forget that the Apostle Paul, even apart from the inspiration of Scripture, was a logical writer. And when he uses the word for, he's introducing an answer to a question or a reason. Now what was it that possessed Abraham, after he got into the land of promise, not to settle down and say, well I've got to the land and I'm going to stop here now, what made him a tent dweller? For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So right back in Genesis, without being told, without us being told, he knew that the land was his. For God said, if the very ordinances of heaven can move and be destroyed or fail, then I'll follow my promise. But he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that land is his, whatever he may do. But he had evidently been in communion with God and was told that he could have a little more. God will never give you less, but he might give you a little more. And so he said he was willing to be a tent dweller, but he looked for a city. Well, now it says in um, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Well, that's a backhanded way of saying things if it has to do simply with salvation or with gift. To go to a person and say, now, this is the thing you've got to keep in mind, friend, that those whom you follow all died in faith and got nothing. Well, you say, what's the idea? All say we're not dealing with salvation. We're not dealing with the gift of eternal life. These all died in faith and didn't get anything here because they were like Moses. They had in view the recompense of the reward and those pleasures which were forevermore. But that will come in a minute. 
says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, he says, anyone who acts like that is giving an exhibition of what their true intent is. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. That's a word for us, isn't it? To all our friends and relatives say, well, you know where they're off to? By their very attitude, by their very way of conducting their life. Those who say such things, they declare plainly that they seek a country. And how true the next verse is. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. I always think of Jonah in this case. He ran away from God. And what, what happened? He found a ship. All waiting for him. Oh yes, friends. And there are some people who say, oh, that's an evidence of the Lord's will. I was running away from him and there was a ship waiting for me. Oh, the evil one will give you a ship waiting for you if you want to return. But it says, but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Once again, for he hath prepared for them a city. So you see, we, we've got now Jerusalem which is above coming into view. That which was in view in Galatians is in view here. In Galatians it was a, their hope. In, in Hebrews it was the pride. The two are converging here. Well now we'll turn the page and go on to chapter 12. You remember in the reading we had just now in Galatians chapter 4 Paul introduces the two sons of Abraham in an allegory, the son of the bondwoman, the son of the free, and he says the son of the free was a sample of the picture of Jerusalem which is above. Well, in this chapter 12, <coughs> we have um, we have Sinai and Mount Zion. Uh, but first of all, we notice um, with regard to... Um, Esau particularly, because I want to use a word from out of that passage. He says, Esau, verse 16, for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. That word birthright gives us the word firstborn in verse 23. It's only a change of a letter. The firstborn is the one who had the birthright. So we'll look at this now in um, the next few verses. Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. He says in chapter 10, that the sacrifices of, of the law that was given by Moses, they could not take away sin. They never led on to perfection. There was no perfection in the law. It only came through faith in Christ. He says, we're not taking you to Mount Sinai. And then it says, verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. And there's almost a little play on those words, even in the English. Sinai and Zion, they've got much of the same composition. But oh, what a difference between law and grace. Here come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So you see, Abraham looked for a city. He looked for a heavenly country. He looked for a 
heavenly Jerusalem. He looked for the self-same Jerusalem which is above that we found was in Galatians 4. And to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven. If you take the pairs together, instead of reading the general assembly and church of the firstborn, you will read, and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven. It's just a nicety. And to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that are able. So they're not outside the new covenant. This is not the church of the one body. The church of the one body is not connected with the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not connected with the earthly Jerusalem. It's connected where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all heavens and far above all principality and power. But we've moved up a step, you see, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn, and that's uh, the prerogative of those who not who just avoid the trap into which Esau fell. He swapped his birthright for a mess of pottage. And Philippians says, always oh, said, don't you follow those whose God is their belly. Plain statement, isn't it? In a measure, you would say of Esau, God was his belly was his God. So one morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. He says, you may be tempted to do the same. Oh, don't give up now, having endured so much. Press on. So these are given us as examples. Well, now I think it's time for us to leave Hebrews, which has led us to the heavenly city, to the epistle, to the book of the Revelation, which is the one passage which gives us uh, anything specific about it. We'll look at chapter 20. In the first case, chapter 20. Satan is taken and put into the bottomless pit and kept there for a thousand years. Then verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And that's something important to remember. They're occupied. They were not vacant. They were thrones that were occupied by those who were now going to reign. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, nor in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And these, you see, are associated with that heavenly Jerusalem, which is mentioned in the chapters 2 and 3, about receiving the name of the city, and is described with great uh, detail in chapter 21. But in chapter 21, we are given another hint as to the character of this calling. Verse 9, chapter 21, verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And what did he show? He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the bride is intimately connected with the heavenly Jerusalem. When he said, I will show you the bride, he showed the city, 
with which the bride was associated. If you turn back now to chapter 19 for a moment. Chapter 19. The Alleluias have gone up because Babylon is destroyed. And it says now in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, would you remember that John who wrote the book of the Revelation was the John who wrote the Gospel. Now, in the Gospel according to Matthew, you are told that there's, by a parable, that a king, a king made a marriage for his son and sent out invitations that those who were invited, they made light of it and didn't bother. He sent out a second time and said, Come, for all things are ready. And then they rounded on those who brought the gracious message. They persecuted some. In fact, they killed some. And then the parable says, He will burn up their city and miserably destroy those men. And then said, Go out into the highways and gather all bad and good that my wedding may be furnished with guests. Don't you see? Well, here in chapter 19 we have the bride and we have an invitation mentioned about the guests. Blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John administered in John's Gospel. If you ask me, what is the actual calling of John's Gospel? I say I'm on rather slender ground here. Uh, but John the Baptist in John's Gospel, nowhere else is called the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. And the first sign that he picks out in John's Gospel, is a marriage at Cana of Galilee on the seventh day. You'll have to count them in chapter 1 to get to the seventh day, but you'll find on the seventh day that's mentioned there was the marriage at Cana. And John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. And John's ministry is going out of the highways and byways and calling from the Gentile world those who are to be guests at the marriage supper which Israel, on their part, forfeited. So you see, it's beginning to fit. Now here's a new calling. A company called the Bride. Very different from the divorced wife of Israel who are yet to be restored. She is not called a Bride. But this is a new company. They are the overcomers. They include uh, one like Abraham who was willing to be a tent dweller because he looked for the city. Here's the city. Here's all the associations of this new calling. So, putting two and two together as best we may in these things, we don't profess to have all the answers, but we do feel that in general we can say that there are three different spheres of blessing which are associated with three different aspects of the coming of Christ. We've seen that the earth is to be visited by him, and when he comes, the wilderness will blossom as a rose, war will cease, they will beat their spears into plowshares. The people of Israel will then enter into their high calling as a kingdom of priests and the knowledge of the Lord shall go out to the end of the earth with Jerusalem on the earth as a center. Then we find that some of those who believe that and hope for it, 
They also had aspirations which were given to them by God of something over and above. And as I mentioned about Moses, who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. There was something in front of him that encouraged him. So some of these were encouraged by the heavenly Jerusalem, the reward for their faith, which we find is associated with the overcomers who would not be yield to the beast or bear the mark of his name, or even were martyred and beheaded for him. They are associated with this city too. So, here we've got now in the uh, epistle to the Galatians a hint of Jerusalem which is above. We have it elaborated in the book of the Revelation, Jerusalem which is above, and this has to do with another aspect of the coming of Christ, quite independent of the one which has to do with visiting the earth. Well now, quite a number of God's people more or less stay there. There's quite a number of God's people who are rejoicing in the thought that they constitute the bride of the Lamb. Well, none of us are worthy to be numbered among that group, so we won't quarrel with them. They may be. As I said to one of them once, I said, look, if I'm going to be a part of the bridegroom one day, and you're going to be a part of the bride, don't let's get a loggerhead just now. We're going to live in, in contentment and peace later on anyhow. You see? Don't let's chase one another about. Let's see to it so far as we are concerned. We know the ground beneath our feet we know the scriptures upon which we rest, and if somebody else doesn't agree with us, oh well, leave it for the Lord rather than make a contention of it. Especially, as I say, if you maintain you're a member of the bridegroom, and the one with whom you're arguing is maintaining that he or she is a member of the bride. You won't be at loggerheads in that day, anyhow. But you might say to me, and I'll anticipate what we should have to see next time, you might say to me, well, where do you get this idea that there's a company that could possibly be called members of the bridegroom. Well, look at it this way. In the beginning, paradise was occupied by a man, all by himself. And God said it's not good for man to be alone, and the first marriage took place by God's ordinance. And paradise, with the tree of life, is yet to be restored. Now, if the ultimate and final calling of God's people is the bride, and that's all, when the bride comes, there'll be no Adam. No equivalent to Adam in paradise. She'll be all on her own again. But that isn't so. Because if you'll turn back for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4, there's a word there which I think should be kept in mind and correct us a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4 is in the practical section of that epistle. And uh, he's speaking about the unity of the faith subsequent to the unity of the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Now, a person may argue that the word man is used all over the Scriptures to include men, women and children, mankind. That is true. But it isn't true of this word. This is not the ordinary word that means man. This is not anthropos, which means men, women and children. This is the word that gives us, I believe, the Scotch name, Andrew. When this word becomes a genitive, it takes a D in the middle of it, but the ordinary word is ania, A-N-long-E-R, ania. 
Now, to see what the meaning of this word is in the minds of the Apostle Paul, will you look at chapter 5? And I won't put husbands in this passage, I'll put men. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own men. Well, we go back to Scotland again, but that's what the, the wife calls her husband. My man. This is the word husband. The same word. And it comes in verse, it comes in 23, 24, 25. And this is never used in the New Testament, wherever it comes. Never used except of a man in contrast with a woman. Well now, has Paul slipped up here? If Paul believed that the church of Ephesians was the bride, why did he introduce a word that he himself had, to, had, to, had used to meet a husband? But he made no slip. He made no slip. There is a bride of the Lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem, and those who constitute the body of Christ, the church of the one body, they are associated with him in all his ways, and so we can see that when paradise is restored, it will be restored fully and completely. Now this means three different spheres of calling, three different aspects of the second coming, and this evening we've been looking at that which comes in between the earthly calling, which has to do with the people of Israel as a nation, and the far above all position, which has to do with the church of the one body, and no connection with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Israel at all. But that we must postpone until we meet together another time. When we finish next time the aspect of the second coming that we should have to take from the prison epistles, we should have to round it off by showing that there are three spheres of blessing, there are distinctly three callings, and each one of them is associated with a distinct aspect of the second coming of Christ. So that when you know your calling, as the scripture indicates, when you know your calling, you will have your eyes opened to understand what is the hope of your calling. That's Ephesians 1. And when you're called upon to keep the unity of the Spirit, when it comes to one hope of your calling, it extends it. One hope of your calling, showing you cannot disassociate the hope, which is waiting for the second coming of Christ. You cannot disassociate the hope of his coming from your calling. So it depends entirely upon what your calling is as to what phase of the second coming will be the one for which you are waiting. Those of you who have endorsed the teaching of the epistles to the Ephesians and realize that that has given you a, a blessed hope with regard to the coming of Christ, you will leave the earth with all its beauty and glory to those who will enjoy it and you may never set a foot in the heavenly Jerusalem for all I know. I don't know, you may visit it, but not necessarily but you'll not be losing anything. For as sure as where Christ is, at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power, it cannot be less, but it might be infinitely more than eye have seen, nor ear heard, or enter the heart of man. May we not merely entertain these things as intellectual bits that we store in our mind, but may we remember that the apostle who wrote these things said, let us live looking for that blessed hope. And don't forget that in his last epistle, he spoke not about those who believe in the second coming. He didn't speak about those who attended second advent meetings. He said, all those that love his appearing. And that's a deeper still than merely being able to distinguish between the word parathia, apocalypsis, and epiphania. 
we might make a big mouthful of those Greek words and still fail of loving his appearing. And I'm sure that those who love his appearing will get the thing sorted out far more clearly than those who have access to lexicon and concordancy and that's the end of their study. So we look to meet together on one more occasion to deal with the final aspect of the coming of Christ and then the fourth one to finish this little series to demonstrate before you that there are three spheres of blessing demanding three aspects of the second coming and then we pray that you may take these things as merely signposts and indexes, turn to the scriptures, be true Bereans, search and see, so that when you have to give a reason for the hope that is within you, you'll be able to give it in some form that will give conviction to the hearer.